0: morning everyone so last week uh, we began to examine the life of king manasseh Uh, we learned that his name means to forget or to cause one to forget now manasseh had a godly heritage he had righteous uh, king hezekiah as his father Uh, he had the oracles of god the law of god being part of the covenant community in the kingdom of judah Uh, yet uh, being true to his name he forgot and he forsook uh, the god of his forefathers uh, he forgot, he forsook his godly heritage and the law of God and he led the people of Judah down this path of idolatrous wickedness which involved the worship of Baals, Asherah uh, and even child sacrifices to the pagan god Molech uh, so that is uh, what we examined last week. And we're going to pick back where we left off. Uh, last week we were in uh, uh, the historical narrative in 2nd Kings chapter 21. Uh, this week, this morning, we'll be in 2nd Chronicles chapter th- 33. And we'll be examining uh, the latter half uh, of that narrative uh, involving the life of Manasseh. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you Lord for uh, bringing us together as your people Uh, Thank you for your word Um, Thank you for this opportunity uh, for us to study your word together I pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit that you will illumine your word You would open our hearts and minds to receive The truths that you have in store for us And uh, may we be uh, doers of your word, and not hearers only, uh, living out your word in a manner that honors and glorifies your name and bears testament to who we are in Christ Jesus. I thank you for what you will do. I pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would uh, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33. We will start there. Now we will refer back to uh, In our time this morning, we'll refer back to the narrative in 2 Kings as well, 2 Kings 21, but we'll start in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him the Babylon and when he was in distress he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God Afterward he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Opal, and he raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the and the idol, rather, from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered, it, offered on at sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless the people still sacrificed at the high places but only to the Lord their God. We'll stop right there for now. So despite uh, Manasseh's unbridled wickedness, the, Yahweh was merciful. He did not leave Manasseh without godly witness. And the Chronicle of records states that the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. And we see that uh, from the narrative in Second Kings chapter 21, if you turn over there with me, uh, that the Lord does so. Uh, he bears godly witness uh, to Manasseh through his prophets. In Second uh, Kings chapter 21 verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets. So uh, how does Manasseh respond and how do the people of Judah respond? Rather than heeding the call to repentance and turning away from their idolatrous lifestyle, they harden their hearts towards God. And not only does does Manasseh do that, he also persecutes and he slays uh, the the people of God, the righteous people of God, including some of the prophets. Jewish tradition holds that uh, Manasseh had the prophet Isaiah killed during his reign at that time. So what happens thereafter? We see that God uh, renders judgment in keeping with his covenant promises that he had uh, he had laid out uh, to the people of Israel uh, Covenant promises of blessing uh, And covenant promises of curses If they were to disobey His holy law So what is the nature of the judgment that God um, uh, Passes on, on Manasseh And the people of, of Judah We see that first it comes from, direct, from God Himself It is rendered by God We're told behold Behold I, that is the Lord, am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah. And the judgment is profound in nature. We're told such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. So the surrounding nations, the pagan nations who are bearing witness to what is going on uh, in the nation of Judah during the reign of Manasseh, uh, they will be in awe of what God will do uh, on his covenant people. And this judgment will be comprehensive and complete. Uh, look at look with me in Second uh, Kings twenty one, starting in verse thirteen. Second Kings twenty one thirteen, the Lord says, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I'll, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And lastly, the Lord says that he will forsake his heritage. He will forsake his covenant people, and he will turn them over uh, to, the, uh, to, his en- to their enemies, the surrounding nations. So he'll remove the hedge of protection that he had, ha- had around his people, and he'll allow his people to be conquered by those pagan nations and taken captive in judgment against them. So why the reason for such judgment. Why did God do this to his people? And as if the people didn't know, as if Manasseh did not know, the Lord takes, uh, it's almost like he takes pain to, to clearly outline, clearly lay out the reasons why he brings about such judgment. So they're without excuse. They can't scratch their heads and say, man, why is the Lord doing this to us? is very clear as to why he brings this judgment about on his covenant people. Uh, we're continuing, continuing on in, uh, in verse 15. He says, the Lord says, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So the judgment is not only falls on Manasseh, the king, their ruler, but also falls on the nation as a whole. So it's, it falls on all of them because all of them are guilty as charged uh, of their idolatry against a holy God. So the, uh, And also the second thing we see is the people could not blame uh, uh, their wickedness just on Manasseh. It's like, he, he led us to do this. Uh, it was the kings that were ruling over us that led us down this path of wickedness. We see here that they're told, the Lord uh, tells the people through his prophets, since the day they, you came out of Egypt. So there, this wickedness, their idolatry has been generational. There's been a pattern, there's been a history, a long history, a history that precedes, precedes the monarchy. Even before they got a human king, they were already worshiping these idols as God's covenant people in violation of God's covenant. In fact, they're the ones, the people uh, uh, clamored for a king. When, when Samuel came of age, uh, he could no longer serve as their judge. They rejected God from being their king, and they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a human king who will go out before them uh, come, when it comes to battle. So they rejected God as their king. So this was a result of their, uh, their history of wickedness and idolatry. So God, in judgment, in a way, gave them a king that suited their lifestyle. So he turns them over, gives them over uh, to the, the lusts of their hearts, as we are told in Romans. He gives them what they want. He gives them Manasseh to be their ruler. So what happens next? What does this judgment look like? Uh, we're, go- we're going back to the main narrative in Second Chronicles chapter 3. 33 rather so we're told that the Assyrians they invade the nation of Judah and they take uh, Manasseh their king as uh, as their captive now scholars are divided as to why this happened in fact uh, some scholars question uh, the the reality or the um, uh, the fact that this actually happened because there's uh, the king's narrative does not mention, does not make any mention of the captivity and, and uh, Manasseh's eventual restoration. Only the narrative in Chronicles does so. So there is some controversy. We're not going to address it right now. We're, we're going to revisit that later on in our lesson. But certain scholars argue that Manasseh was involved in a, uh, a rebellion against the king, Assyrian king at the time, who was Ashurbanipal. So in the annals of these Assyrian kings, King uh, Esar-Hadon and ashur they make mention of Manasseh as being one of their vassal kings. So by this time, uh, Judah was no longer the military power and the political uh, uh, power that it had in the days of David. It had ceased to be that long ago. It started during the reign of King Ahaz, Manasseh's grandfather. And it, it had some reprieve, some freedom during the reign of uh, Hezekiah, but uh, when Manasseh became the king, it returned to its state of vassalhood. So uh, uh, Manasseh was implicated in this conspiracy. The rebellion is quelled, and Manasseh is taken captive and punished accordingly by the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. We're told in uh, verse 11, verse uh, 11, that therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So he is taken away, bound uh, with shackles, and has this hook placed in his nostril, dragged away for nearly 900 miles from uh, Jerusalem, to the provincial capital, Babylon, uh, likely on barefoot, bruised and bloodied for a long period of time. And there he was thrown into prison uh, to likely live out the rest of his days, so it seemed to him at that time. Richard Pratt comments, archeological discoveries verify that the Assyrians actually inserted hooks through the noses of their captives and attach them to chains. So this was their standard practice. They were cruel people, and uh, God uses this wicked nation to judge his covenant people because of their idolatry. Now, This this should cause us to, to remember that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the author of Hebrews mentions this, states this in the context of judgment when he is written to his God's covenant people who, were, who may be uh, wanting to apostatize themselves because of the persecution that they were facing at the time uh, for, their, uh, for their faith. So Manasseh is in captivity. He is by all indications, is rotten away in prison uh, in the provisional capital of Babylon. So what does Manasseh do? How does Manasseh respond to this cruel judgment that has come to pass at the hand of God? We're told, um, where are we at? Okay, we're in verse 12. And we're told, and when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. The New American Standard Bible says, he appeased the Lord his God. The New King James Version says, he implored the Lord his God. So how did Manasseh do this? How did he entreat the Lord's favor? How did he appease the wrath of a holy God? How did he implore upon him? He began by humbling himself. The, ver- the verse says we are, uh, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. So he remembers the God that his father Hezekiah worshipped. He remembers what he was taught as a child. He begins to recall the law of God that, that he, was, uh, he was nurtured on. And after that, secondly, he prays to the Lord. Perhaps this might be the first time that he actually prays to Yahweh, to the God of his forefathers. He may have prayed to Baal, he may have prayed to Asherah, Molech, offering sacrifices to them. He may have done that right alongside uh, praying to, uh, to Yahweh, syncretistic worship, as that was the practice in the day. But now he begins to see that it was Yahweh alone who's the one true God, and he alone is the one that is to be worshiped and that can deliver him out of his uh, captivity. So the manner in which Manasseh seeks Yahweh alludes to the promise God had made to King Solomon shortly after Solomon had dedicated the temple. Look back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. So, just to give you a context, after many years in construction, um, the Jerusalem Temple is built in, Jeru- uh, in, um, in the capital city uh, and is dedicated. And uh, Solomon prays this prayer in in front of the whole congregation of the nation of Israel, that the Lord will will honor. Uh, him as the king uh, of the nation and honor the people by allowing himself to dwell in the temple, which was t- built uh, towards him for worship. And that very same night, the Lord comes to Solomon in a dream, and uh, he he says this to Solomon. Uh, he promises this to Solomon, not only to Solomon but but those who will follow in his footsteps. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So how does God respond to Manasseh's prayer? We're told that God was moved by his entreaty. I wanted to look up this word moved uh, what does it mean? The Hebrew word that's, uh, that's used here is the, the word Athar. And it means that God answered, that God responded to Manasseh's prayer. He heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. So the Lord heard and answered Manasseh's prayer in keeping with that promise that he had made, which we had just read, that promise that he had made to King Solomon. Another reason why God answered and honored Manasseh's prayer is that, for the first time, by all indications, for the first time in his life, he makes the right sacrifice. He makes the not the right sacrifice to the right God, to the only God. Uh, Look at Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51, verse 17. This was a prayer of Manasseh's forefather, King David, where he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this was the one sacrifice that matters most to God. And Manasseh offers this out of the depths of his heart while he is in captivity and the Lord Hears him. So this should cause us to pause and marvel at the grace of God. God's grace that is shown even to a wicked, uh, idol-loving, child-killing sinner such as Manasseh. There's a passage in Micah. Now, recall, Isaiah was one of the main prophets... Uh, during the reigns of Ahaz, Hezekiah, and likely during the the reign of Manasseh as well. But there was another prophet. Isaiah was the prophet to the the court, to the royalty. He was of royalty. Uh, And uh, uh, Micah was the other prophet, another prophet, and he was uh, ministering during this time as well. Uh, likely during the time of Manasseh. So he says this in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. And, and this is said right on the heels of a litany of judgments that uh, the Lord renders on his people because they're living in idolatry, they're, they're in wickedness. And after saying all of that in judgment, what had preceded, Uh, what he's about to say, he says this, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 about God. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of Of the sea and this is clearly illustrated for us for all of church history in the life of Manasseh and how God deals with Manasseh uh, when he cries out to him uh, for forgiveness uh, and in repentance the Puritan George Swinnock says in his book the incomparableness of God God is incomparable in his mercy mercy is an attribute of God whereby he pities and relieves his creature in misery. Fallen man is the proper object of mercy, as being not only undeserving of the least good, but as also having plunged himself into all evil. Mercy not only pities, but also relieves the afflicted. It has a hand to supply, as well as a heart to pity those who are in distress. So unlike his grandfather Ahaz who in his time of distress he he hardened his heart further and would not repent. Manasseh repents of his sin and he obtains mercy from the Lord. Now there was another wicked king Ahab. Recall uh, he was confronted uh, by the prophet Elijah when he had murdered Naboth and he had confiscated his vineyard. Uh, So It seemed on the surface that that Ahab was repentant, but he was more remorseful. He was remorseful for being caught in his sin, but for being caught in the act. But he never really bore fruits, uh, a lifestyle, uh, keeping keeping, uh, with repentance, with true repentance. But that was not the case about Manasseh, as we will see. So we see uh, that in Manasseh, there are works. There is evidence of a changed lifestyle in keeping with true repentance. So upon his re- return from captivity, Manasseh embarks on a series of reforms. Uh, reforms that, uh, that paralleled what his late father Hezekiah had done. And the reforms are, one, uh, he, he does a military reform. He builds fortifications. He rebuilds Uh, And raises the outer wall of the city of Jerusalem and then he places commanders over the army in all the fortified cities and The second reform that he does which is the more important one is religious in nature Uh, There is a negative and a positive aspect to these religious reforms that Manasseh brings about in the nation of Judah first he takes away all those foreign gods uh, that uh, he was worshiping the Baal, the Asherah, the Molech and uh, various other objects of worship that were involved in astral worship he removes them from the temple and he also cleanses the community of the altars that he had built to these pagan deities and he has them burnt outside he not only removes them he takes them outside of the city of Jerusalem and he burns them uh, to to dust uh, like his father had done and positively, the reform that Manasseh brings is that he restores the altar of the Lord and offers uh, sacrifices of peace, uh, offering, and thanksgiving uh, in Jerusalem where the Lord had commanded that such offering should be made and how he should be worshipped. And then lastly, he commands the people, the, uh, the nation of Judah, to serve and worship only the Lord God of Israel. Now, this reforms likely took time to implement and to take effect. So, highly likely, uh, Manasseh was afforded uh, time to continue to rule in Judah after his captivity. He was afforded a a number of years uh, to to rule as a righteous king, uh, to sort of redeem, if you will, the Lord redeemed some of those years that the locusts had eaten because of Manasseh's idolatry. So earlier in our lesson, we had mentioned uh, the, the two narratives, the difference uh, between the two narratives. The narrative in uh, in 2 Kings makes no mention of Manasseh's captivity and his redemption, while the narrative that we are, have been looking at primarily in 2 Chronicles uh, goes into ga- great detail about his captivity and his restoration. So why the two narratives? In order to Uh, understand that we need to look at and uh, examine the author's uh, intent in writing those narrative and also the audience to whom was the uh, was the respective author writing to. So the narrative in in 1st and 2nd Kings was written or had their final edition completed during the exilic period. By this time uh, the uh, judgment had fallen completely on the nation of Judah as had been promised by God. So the people were living in exile in Babylon. So the audience uh, w- were those people living in exile. So the author of the, the narrative in First and Second Kings is reminding his audience that their exile is the direct result of their idolatrous wickedness. So he is driving this point home by ending his narrative, like he does in Second Kings, with the promise of judgment on them for their idolatry, so now judgment had fallen on on them as promised and had, has been warned by God, resulting in their exile. That's that's the narrative in in, in the Kings. Now the narrative in First and Second Chronicles, it's written during the post-exilic period. The 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 children of, of Judah, the people of Judah, had already served 70 years in exile, and by now they had returned to the nation of Judah after that period of time. So the, so they are the remnant people who had returned from their exile. And certain scholars attribute the chronicled, chronicler to be uh, the prophet Ezra. So be it Ezra or someone else who authored this narrative, he's drawing a parallel between Manasseh's experience and what they, are, what they as a people are experiencing after their return from captivity. You see, both Manasseh and the people of Judah had sinned and committed idolatry against God. So as a result of their sin, they were judged for their idolatry. For their wickedness that's why just as Manasseh was led into captivity to the nation of Judah uh, nation of Babylon uh, so the people were led into captivity uh, in the same way and for the same reason so upon repenting Manasseh is is shown favor mercy at the hand of God and so the people upon their repentance are shown mercy and favor in the eyes of God and they are allowed to return back to the nation of Judah. And just as Manasseh, after returning back to, to Judah, uh, embarks on this building campaign, he rebuilds the outer wall, he he uh, makes it higher, and he provides various reinforcements, so the uh, post-exilic rem- uh, remnant upon their return, they do likewise. So that is why the, uh, uh, the author of the Chronicle's narrative is drawing this parallel, and he has this uh, details mentioned uh, to encourage the people uh, who have returned to continue uh, to live in accordance with the law of God and continue the, to, uh, to do the work of rebuilding uh, that for which they had been tasked with. And the Chronicler further underscores the historicity of these events by his statement in the following verses. We read the remaining uh, narrative here in Second Chronicles. Uh, let's go back here. Starting in uh, verse 18. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to God and the words of the seers which Uh, ...who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the uh, chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithfulness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers... So, Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house, and Amon, his son, reigned in his place. So, what do we take away in terms of application from this, uh, from this narrative that we had just studied? The first thing that uh, we learn about, uh, by the application is that Manasseh's redemption. Gives us great hope That God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save nor his ear dull that he cannot hear God is in the business of saving such a sinner as Manasseh So what the do, what does what should this great hope cause us to do as God's covenant people? first it should cause us to continue to labor faithfully in our prayers We will continue to pray that the Lord would be merciful and save the Manasseh, the prodigal in our lives, whoever that may be. It may be members of our own household, friends, colleagues, neighbors, even enemies. Christ says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So each and every one of them who are yet to come to saving faith in Christ need our prayers that they would do so. Just as someone prayed for us and faithfully labored that we would come to saving faith, and here we are, part of God's covenant community, we should labor to do so in our prayers. Second, it should cause us to continue to labor in our witness. This is why we evangelize and do missions locally and why we support missions internationally. Manasseh's story, you see, is a microcosm of what Christ is doing, has been doing globally. He has been building his church ever since he inaugurated his kingdom. Though though it seems that the gates of hell prevail, yet Christ is building his church in every tribe, nation, people group, in Vegas and beyond. So Christ has not only has redeemed us and made us citizens of his kingdom, adopted us into his family, Christ has invited us to be part of the kingdom that he is building, to be part of that kingdom building. Just as Manasseh returned and he builds his kingdom up, we are building Christ's kingdom, the greater king, the greater son of David. And let let us be faithful in doing so. Now in laboring in our prayers and laboring in our witness, Uh, can be wearisome at times. We might be praying and witnessing uh, to certain people in our lives. It may have been for years. And uh, it it likely would wear on our patience. But remember, it was many a year before Manasseh came to saving faith and repentance. Took a long time, didn't it? But yet God was patient with him. God could have slain him early on in his life because he was unrepentant. He kept sinning and sinning and doing all this idolatry for many years, and yet God was patient till Manasseh came to saving faith. Hold, hold on, uh, we'll have some time for questions, looks like. Um, George Swinnock in his book says this about God. God is incomparable in his patience. Patience is that attribute in which Uh, in God. Patience is that attribute in God whereby he bears with sinners and forbears or defers their punishment or that whereby he expects and waits long for their conversion. He is a God slow to anger. He waits on men to do them good. He is long-suffering. Nay, he endures with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath. He is the God of patience. End quote: And the last point of application for us is one of repentance. Now, we have repented of our sins and turned to God and are worshiping and serving Yahweh, the God of Hezekiah and who becomes the God of Manasseh. but we ought repentance, as Martin Luther had said, it's not a one-time act, but rather repentance should be a daily thing we are to live a life of repentance as we sin daily, understanding that the free offer of forgiveness remains extended to us by a loving and gracious Father. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I do have time for questions. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Any comments yes, mark Does, uh, do, we know how long Manasseh, do we know how long he was in captivity in Babylon? No, I uh, mean, I don't, I don't know it just like yeah. it goes he's there then he's out and it makes you wonder Yeah, you know, how long did it take him to come to repentance? I don't know yeah. it did uh, the commentators, uh, the sources that I used in my study uh, did not comment on that. Uh, they were silent on that matter, so I left it at that. <laughs> I didn't want to speculate. <laughs> yes, Ed. Not to turn it political, but I think it's ironic the change in our culture that in 1984, President Reagan got on TV and quoted Second Chronicles 714 calling people to repent. We not see that happen today, so sadly. That 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 just reminded me. Or while we're waiting on John to get the mic, uh, during uh, one of the sources that I used for this teaching series was uh, R.C. Sproul's uh, series, "The Church and the State." And in one of those lectures he shared how he was invited to the uh, prayer, um, uh, to the inauguration of the then governor of Florida. And he uh, does a devotional, gave a devotional, uh, uh, exhorting the governor before he sworn in what he was tasked to do by God. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many <laughs> believing Christians like R.C. Sproul are now invited to uh, to occasions such as that, but just jogged my memory there. John. I should have asked this question last week, but uh, could you tell us a little bit what exactly the high places were? Well, um, there's a history there. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, yes. So the high places were initially built by I'm gonna have to jog my memory. Is it uh, Jeroboam who was the wicked king of Israel when the kingdom of Israel, the unified kingdom of Israel, was divided? Uh, Judah had the temple in Jerusalem, and uh, the wicked king of Israel, I think, is Jeroboam, did not want his people in Israel to travel down to Jerusalem to uh, to worship there. So he f- he felt it was. Uh, not politically right, he didn't want people in his kingdom to defect by going down to Jerusalem to worship, so he, he had these high places built in, I believe, Dan and Beersheba. So that is how it all started, in clear violation of what God had commanded. God had said, I have uh, allowed myself to, my Shekinah glory to dwell among my people in the temple in Jerusalem, and the people are to worship me in Jerusalem alone. But that's, a, that's how it all started. We're a competing uh, places of worship started in Dan and Beersheba. And I'm sure it progressed on over the years in other places. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, the passage says in Second Chronicles that the people continued to worship in those high places. Uh, they worshiped the Lord their God. But the manner and the place in which they worshiped was wrong so they were still idolatrous in a way they were to worship the lord in the way he was prescribed where they were he had prescribed them to worship in jerusalem and they did not do that but that's a long way of answering your question but there it is i just had a comment um, which i think you answered when when you were talking about applications i thought you know Worship should be an application also, which kind of ties into hope and prayer, but just to know a God like that, I mean, should encourage us to worship him more and to worship him right in the right manner, in truth and in spirit, and to pay attention to how we worship because a lot of churches are going astray when it comes to worship. That's a really good comment. Um, I'm convinced it all started this trend with liberalism, postmodernism. I don't even know what, what the phrase is to define our culture today. Uh, but it started when we deviated from the word of God as being the foundation of how we worship God. God has specifically prescribed in his holy word how we ought to be worshipped personally and corporately and one of the reasons why uh, the authority and the inerrancy of, of scriptures was began to be questioned is man in his heart did not like what God has to say about sin and about wickedness and when you take that out you take out the foundation anything's game and this, we're reaping the consequences of that. Yes, sir, Bob. The we studied today, says that the people, I think, this, this passage about Manasseh said the people were, were basically, were, they were complicit with his sinfulness. They, they were they were indicted as sinful also because they did not resist that. Yes. That And uh, so it's a lesson for us to be careful who we elect to positions of power because right. if, if we elect people that are pro-death rather than pro-life, we're complicit in that. You're right. You're right. Thank you. Uh, and R.C. Sproul makes that comment uh, similar to what, what you're making. And sometimes we, we do the convenient thing. You know, we have this one thing that uh, we want our elected official to do, and uh, we're okay voting going with him uh, even though he he's, he doesn't a, have a bad voting record on abortion and other, you know, uh, moral issues, uh, but we, we have to be careful, and also we have to be pr- uh, f- faithful in praying for our elected officials. Because at the end of the day, they need the gospel more than anything else, more than, you know, our support. Uh, they need to come to saving faith. So I think that wraps it up here. Any w- We've got one minute, and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll close in prayer. Thank you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity that we had in studying your word together. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would uh, continue to move and work in our hearts, uh, that we would labor uh, in our prayers, be faithful in laboring in our prayers, and laboring in our witness, uh, in our community, so that others would come to saving faith. And Uh, Many others would enter into your kingdom and do the work of your kingdom. Continue to prepare our hearts for worship uh, and that it would be a blessed time that honors and glorifies your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.